Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, if you like numbers and if you like statistics, have we got a podcast for you this week. Lots and lots of education numbers coming out this week from post-secondary rates uh, to new round of SAT scores to college enrollment numbers. A lot to dive into. Lots of numbers, 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 numbers. And they really, they all kind of came out at once, but they're big, they're important, and a lot of them sort of fit together or are related. They all do kind of fuse together. So what we're going to do is a big stat unwrap here and try to break you down the numbers here a little bit. You can certainly go to idohatenews.org, and I hope you do, to read these numbers in more detail and read the context in more detail. But we're going to try to fuse it all together and tell you why it all matters and what it all means. Yeah, and these are big, important numbers. You took a look at them. First of all, let's take a look at the new numbers uh, pertaining to our 60% goal. That is kind of the state's flagship education goal, Kevin, as our readers and listeners know. And that's all about having 60% of Idaho's young adults possess some sort of a post-secondary degree or a technical certificate, something along those lines. Uh, It's all about an attainment. Uh, goal. And for years and years and years, Idaho has been kind of stuck in neutral, not making any progress. What did you find with the latest numbers? Well, we're still stuck in neutral. The the latest numbers from the Census Bureau uh, reveal that Idaho's uh, post-secondary completion rate hasn't moved since 2015. The numbers for 2016, 2017 are identical. We have a post-secondary completion rate of 42%. And Putting that into context, this has been the state's flagship education goal since 2010. Uh, That's when the state board announced it. That's when uh, political leaders, education leaders, business leaders all kind of coalesced behind this idea. So seven years in, two task forces, uh, both aimed at trying to move Idaho closer to the 60% goal. More than $130 million in money going into varied and sundry initiatives to try to encourage uh, high school students to continue their education. We're still at 42%. And now the takeaway in all of those numbers and the takeaway in sort of the reaction to those numbers is kind of, uh, I was interested in the reactions from the state board, uh, from Matt Freeman, the executive director of the state board, and Linda Clark, the president of the state board, both talking about how this is kind of, I think they're now viewing it as very much a long haul, a, a long-term process, because we're talking about kind of changing attitudes and changing behaviors and changing outcomes for students on down the road. And you know, not wavering from the idea that we need to get to 60%. Uh, Matt Freeman talked about how this is a moral and economic imperative. We have to get more... Uh, we have to get more people prepared for the current workforce, the modern workforce, the changing workforce. But we need to do this also for, for our young people. But you kind of get the sense, or I kind of got the sense, reading between the lines, that this is going to take a while. And I think there's an acknowledgement that this is going to take a while. Yeah, and we've already pushed the goal back once. But there was some talk on Twitter about why the six, and you've alluded to it just now, uh, but there was some talk on, on social media about why the 60% goal, and are you saying that people that don't have a degree or certificate are 
you know, worthless and meaningless. That's not what it is at all. That's not even what the goal this is This had to about. do with a, a, a forecast about preparing the workforce for uh, basically the jobs, not just of the future, but really today. And, and so it, what it is, is a projection to have a workforce-ready uh, populace in the state of Idaho, right? It's not right. It's not arbitrary, and it's not saying that people that don't have a degree or certificate are worthless or a waste of space. That's not what it is. It's a projection to meet demands for the workforce now and into the future. Isn't that right. where it I mean, came from? That's been where this has all, all come from. And I think uh, as we look at where we are in 2018, it probably is valuable to look at how we got uh, got here in 2010. This goes back to research uh, from Georgetown University back in 2010 that projected that Idaho's workforce in, in the future is going to have to be a better educated workforce, that you know more jobs are going to require a college education, a college degree, or a post-secondary certificate. And that gets lost in the shuffle all the time right. when people talk about this. This is not just a college completion, college graduation no, goal. No, not at all. Post-secondary uh, Completion also means professional certificates. Uh, somebody going into, into a CTE program for a year, coming out with a certificate that prepares them for uh, for a job. So you know, let's remember that that's where this whole 60% goal came from back in 2010, the idea that we need to get to a 60% uh, post-secondary completion rate to prepare the state and prepare young adults in the state for the workforce uh, that's changing before our eyes. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I said, it, it is, I, I think there's a cultural change, not just, uh, it's not something obviously we've learned that we're not going to be able to do in five or 10 or 15 years. I think that there's a cultural change. We've talked about needing new cohorts of students. We've talked about capacity at our existing colleges and universities and community colleges. A lot needs to change. This is a big, this is almost the challenge to the younger generation of Idahoans, it feels like. Not something that, you know, hey, if we really focus on this year's no. class of high school freshmen, maybe we'll be there in eight years. That's not what this is, no, right? No, I'm glad you put it that way because it is a generational issue. And that kind of came out in some of the, the reactions uh, to these numbers. So, you know, we're not going to get from 42% to 60% overnight. And I don't think it would have been fair to expect these numbers to move from 42% to 60% in the span of a couple of years. The fact that there's been no movement over the past couple of years is is kind of jarring yeah. when, you, when you look at the numbers. But we are talking about a lot of initiatives that are long-term in nature, whether you're trying to um, get more kids to take uh, college credits while they're in high school, or whether you're trying to put more money into scholarships, or at the higher education level, whether we're talking about uh, outcome-based funding to, to sort of drive the way um, colleges uh, work with at-risk uh, populations, or you know, digital campuses, or anything like that. We're talking about a lot of long-term initiatives. You know, I had uh, some chatter on Twitter when I broke the story on Tuesday with uh, uh, Josh Scholar, who was a member of that higher education task force, and he said, you know, you know, to be fair, you, you have to point out that a lot of our recommendations for changing the higher education system are long term. And he's absolutely right. Outcomes based funding is going to take years to um, to to play out, assuming the legislature goes along right. with it. 
digital learning, digital campuses are going to take years to set up. I mean, th this is this is long haul stuff, and I think that's worth remembering. Yeah. I'm not sitting here saying that we should be at 60% right now, that we should have gone from 42 to 60% in two years. I don't think that's feasible in no. the slightest. But again, three years of stagnated numbers, I mean, that is, uh, that is significant. And uh, you know, it, it, it shows that the state's got its work cut out for, for it because you know, 2025 is the new target date to hit 60%. That's seven years away. You know, we're talking about 25 to 34-year-olds. We're talking about, you know, people who are finishing high school right now or, or past already, high school yeah. or college age. So, you know, when we're talking about changing the culture, when we're talking about getting younger students thinking more about college in middle school or even grade school, and, you know, I think there's a lot to that. If you're trying to change mindsets and you're trying to make a generational change in mindset, that's not going to show up in the numbers in 2018 or 2019. They may not even show up in the numbers in 2025. This is this is long haul stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the concerning thing with looking at the last few years worth of stagnation, this has sort of been an all hands on deck effort. This has been the state's flagship goal, uh, like you said, at least 133 million dollars behind this effort have not moved the needle thus far. And so we're not saying we should have been to 60 percent by now. But the fact that have not inched closer to that goal, probably a concern for uh, a lot of folks. But you did a good and, job and, of... And, and, and remember, I mean, these are not target dates that we dreamt up here at the offices of Idaho Education no. News. State Board came up with the first target date of 2020. The Higher Education Task Force moved it back to 2025. You know, these are these are thought leaders on education and business topics in the state. And... These are the top. These are the numbers they came up with. These are the target dates that they come up came up with. We're just uh, tracking yeah. the progress, sure, or lack thereof, is what we've seen in the past couple of years. Right. You've done a good job tracking the numbers and putting the new Census Bureau data in context. If you want to take a closer look, head on over to IdahoEdNews.org. Scroll back to I believe it was Tuesday. I want to say yep, Tuesday morning uh, when you published your article about the sixty percent goal and the uh, education attainment. That's the first numbers drop. The second, you took a closer look at Idaho's SAT results, specifically how we compare to some of our neighboring states, to some of the states that have similar participation rates as we do. This was a bigger look at where our SAT numbers stand in context. And the important thing here really is the SAT is Idaho's college entrance exam of choice. Explain what that means and explain where we stack up. Okay, so here are the headlines out of these latest SAT scores. And this is for the class of 2018. Idaho's SAT scores dropped. They didn't drop very much. We're talking about a four-point drop. And when you bear in mind that the SAT is graded on a 1,600-point scale, a four-point drop isn't a big drop. So I don't want to sound uh, an alarm here. Just a smidge. A, a smidge. A, 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 yes, exactly. <laughs> but I think you also, what I wanted to try to do with these numbers, and I tried to be really careful with these because there's been a lot of talk about uh, test scores and college entrance exam test scores the past few weeks. Um, what we tried to do was compare Idaho with other states where the SAT is the college entrance right. exam of choice. So you know in Idaho, uh, most high school students take the SAT. A lot of them take a junior year because they can take it for free. Uh, the state picks up the cost. They can take it during the school day. They can knock out a graduation requirement. You have to take a college placement exam to graduate high school. So that's what you've got. And our taxpayers pay a million dollars every year to make that happen. A million dollar bill to, to make this happen. So 
What I wanted to do with the SAT scores when they came out was look at other states that have a similar SAT day. And we've got states like New Hampshire, Maine, Colorado, Illinois, um, the list goes on. States where students are taking the SAT on the taxpayer's dime or are taking it you know, during the school day or both. Because I think that's a fair thing. I think it's fair to compare 100% of Idaho students to 100% of students in New Hampshire. So what I looked at when I looked at those comparisons, we're ahead of only two of uh, 10 states in the District of Columbia that have similar SAT participation. We're a little bit ahead of Delaware. We're uh, a little bit more significantly ahead of the District of Columbia. The other states that have an SAT day or have really high SAT participation, uh, we're behind them. So New Hampshire, uh, I think is the, the best of the bunch, uh, but states like Colorado, Illinois, Florida has high participation. That I think is a fair comparison. What I really tried to avoid, and I report on it in passing and tried to put it in context, I don't dwell very much on how we compare to other, to our neighboring states, because when you've got 100% of our students in Idaho taking the SAT and you've got 3 or 4% of students in Wyoming and Utah taking the SAT, that's not even close to a fair comparison because those students in Utah and Wyoming are taking the SAT. They're probably taking it on the weekend. They're paying for it themselves or their parents are paying for it. They're studying for it because they're probably taking the SAT because they're applying to a college that requires it, maybe a very selective college. They may be uh, gunning for uh, scholarship money. Stands to reason those students are really highly motivated. They're probably high-achieving students in the first place. They're going to score well on the SAT, and they do. And Idaho has those kind of students as well. But you know that's a subset of a bigger student population, and that bigger student population in Idaho is taking the SAT. So, you know... We've had a lot to talk about. The ACT scores and the SAT scores, I think, is really important to not only look at the scores, but also look at the participation rates. So we try to put that in context. Go to idahoidnews.org, look at the numbers, look at the comparisons, and try to look at the numbers in context. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, thank you for that. One last uh, number drop. I heard a lot of discussion last legislative session about expanding the popular opportunity scholarship uh, to these so-called adult completers. You had a chance to take a look at the numbers of, say, non-traditional students, adults, who took advantage of the scholarship expansion and went back to school, put it to good use. How did it sort of compare to what we were hearing during the legislative session? Well, it's off to a slow start, Clark, and I think that maybe is to be expected because this just was passed by the legislature in March. It just went into effect this summer. This is the first semester where adults can get a share of the Opportunity Scholarship so that they can go back to college and, and try to complete their degree. So slightly over 100 students, adult students, applied for a scholarship. 28 students wound up getting and receiving a scholarship to, to go back to college. So bottom line, we're talking about somewhere around $80,000 in scholarships awarded to adults. Pretty much a drop in the bucket. This is a $13 million a year, $13.5 million a year scholarship program with most of the money still going to more traditional college students, your 18 to 22-year-old students. Uh, who need that money and, and are really applying for this scholarship in big numbers. Uh, there's been unmet demand 
uh, for that scholarship for years, and I think that's likely to continue. The concern when this adult completer scholarship went into effect, and we heard that debate, both of us, over and over, yep. over three years as the legislature uh, killed it a couple this, of, yeah. killed it a couple times and barely passed it this year. The concern that this is going to water down the scholarship, it's going to make it even harder for 18 to 22-year-old students, traditional college students, to get a share of the money. That may yet happen because the state board is authorized to spend up to 20% of scholarship dollars on the adult completer scholarship. There may be more competition for that, that resource down the road, but right now it's off to a slow start. And I, I wouldn't read too much into that because it is a brand new program. The word is probably just now getting out. Right. I'll be very interested to see what we see in terms of participation, in terms of adult completer scholarships in the spring semester, next year and beyond. Because uh, folks from Governor Butch Otter on down have said that this is a really important policy. We need to get these adult students back into college, getting them to complete their degrees. They're an important element in trying to get to that elusive 60% goal. So the program isn't going to go away. I think and Governor Butch of... Otter has talked himself about how he started and stopped his own education career. Right, uh, and, and he's not alone. I mean, you know, there are... And there are a lot of folks who start and stop and go back to school for a lot of different reasons. And they may have nothing to do with academic performance. Right. Maybe you start a family, you have a kid, you go back to work full time because you have a kid. We uh, keep hearing life happens. Life happens. And it does. And, and it Absolutely. Does. I mean, you know, not everybody, you know, gets to follow this, you know, simple linear route from graduating high school to graduating college to going into the workforce. Uh, a lot of things happen along the way for a lot of different people, and it's not a reflection on uh, whether these are serious students, whether they're uh, you know, capable of completing college-level work. It may have nothing to do with academic uh, performance. It may have nothing to do with intellect, uh, intellectual curiosity, any of those things. Life happens, and this is a scholarship that's designed to uh, step in when life does happen. So. Interesting to see what's happening so far. It'll be interesting to see what happens down the road. Well, it was a good week for you because you got to spend a lot of time delving crunching into numbers, spreadsheets yes. and crunching numbers. But I'm glad you do it because I don't have to. But it is important to provide the context. These are, you know, we're trying to follow up big discussion points during the legislature, big discussion points at the State Board of Education. So what we're doing this week and what we try to do throughout the year is follow up and how are we doing? How are we tracking? And, and, and all of these, how are these things and, being implemented? And all of these dots do connect, whether it's the uh, post-secondary completion numbers or the SAT scores or the adult completer numbers that we got this week, or even the college enrollment numbers that we got for fall of 2018. And I won't dwell on those because you can read those at adoednews.org. Long story short, Boise State's enrollment increased, even though the economy is really good and the unemployment rate is very low, you still have uh, more students going to Boise State than we've seen another record year at Boise State. Drops at U of I and uh, Idaho State University, enrollment drops at those two schools. Again, you know, you know enrollment you know, is sort of a bellwether of whether you're going to get to any kind of a improvement on the 60% goal because students have to show up in the first place. So it all does tie together. All of those numbers are on our site. So check it out and you know connect the dots for yourself. And this certainly fits in with your interest right now. And it certainly fits in and is a part of 
the big series that you're working on that you're going to do debut next month about life after high school and about higher education attainment, right? right. That's November coming in 26th, November. Uh, we launched that series. We're going to look at the 60% goal. We're going to look at some of the demographics that come into play in terms of uh, convincing high school graduates to continue their education. So we'll look at rural Idaho. We'll look at poverty and how that affects the, the equation. Uh, we'll look at uh, the Latino and Native American communities and what's happening in, in those uh, sectors. Uh, so a much more in-depth look at the 60% goal and where we stand and how uh, what it might take to get closer to that goal. So we've got that coming up in November. We have a town hall meeting on December 4th. So you can hear from some of the, the students and teachers and uh, thought leaders that we've talked to in, in the making of this project. So a lot to look forward to in November and December. Month from today, the first articles will start coming out. I'm super excited about it. Definitely yeah. worth everybody's time, all of our readers and listeners to seek that out and, in late November, early and, December. And, right, and also on November 26th, you'll be, you'll be busy, one of us will be busy, maybe both of us will be busy because the ongoing saga of the Funding Formula Committee will uh, resume on November 26th. That's their That's next right. meeting. And their last meeting was on Thursday. You were there. They uh, were they double parked or something because they weren't there very long. It was a very short <laughs> I meeting. Know. I mean, did they like rent one of those e-scooters and they wanted to make sure nobody took it uh, before they uh, took it back? I mean, it was about a two-hour meeting, right? If that. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, maybe a little closer to three, but uh, yeah, the school funding formula, which has been ongoing for three years mm -hmm. now. Uh, the big highlight is they received a third draft of a proposed new funding. Formula model. This is a huge deal. Um, we've been covering it for a, a long time, and we we're having a lot of fun about the length of the meeting. But I, I just want to emphasize this is such a huge deal, and this will affect everything. Uh, but in, in case you haven't been paying attention, three years ago, this committee of legislators was put together uh, trying to update, modernize, rewrite the state's school funding formula. It hadn't been really rewritten in something like 26 years or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 1994 was the year. Um, anyways, so a big, huge, arduous task. They have three drafts they've looked at now. Uh, still no final decisions made on Thursday. But my takeaway on Thursday sitting at this meeting was really starting to play with the formula model and see some of the winners and losers that would be created by making this change. And Real, I think at this point... is kind of setting in here, isn't it? The hard decisions are, are, are starting to come into focus here about what this could mean. And I think that really is a fair way to describe what happened, uh, especially during the first half of, of Thursday's meeting. Starting to look at, when you run these simulations, uh, how these school districts could be affected. And, um, and, and if you're serious about trying to have a shock absorber here for the schools, you know, keep schools whole in the transition. Now we're starting to see that that's going to be an expensive undertaking. It's going to take some big bucks. And I don't think we know exactly how much yet. I mean, I've heard ranges from anywhere from $40 million up to $160 million in the first year to hold harmless. And what does hold harmless mean? That means to make sure that the school districts do not receive less money under the new formula than they did during the 2017-2018 budget year. But we're only talking about that being a, a temporary thing anyways. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the spreadsheet and the formula really aren't out to the public yet. And that's important. Um, but the committee and the consultants played with the formula and they ran a couple simulations 
on Thursday. And it's starting to concern some school districts. By one measure, Eastern Idaho's Sugar Salem School District is the poorest district in the state of Idaho. And under a simulation that we saw yesterday, the Sugar Salem School District could see its annual budget cut by $450,000. That's that's a lot of money. That's not a big district. No. And similarly, the Kimberly School District, their superintendent, Luke Schroeder, thinks there's a best-case scenario where his district might lose $500,000 a year. that's the best-case scenario. That's the best-case scenario based on what he knows knows now. Is seeing enrollment numbers go up consistently. There's also this new, boogeyman's too strong of a word, but there's a concern within the funding formula that the consultant Michael Griffith pointed out yesterday, and it has to do with small school districts that aren't growing and do not have large populations of at-risk or special needs students. Mm -hmm. He said no matter how he plays with the formula, he can't do anything to prevent them from losing out big time under this change. And that would be a concern because a lot of these school districts are saying we're already stretched thin. Uh, We're already having teachers do double duty and superintendents might be teaching a class or a principal might be coaching a sport and teaching a class. And so small school districts are sort of the lifeblood of their communities, and they're already stretched thin. And some of them are starting to take a look at at some of the realities that could confront them under this change. And people are starting to pay attention and and starting to look at the hard realities that this could create. Yes, there would be a shock absorber, a shock absorber um, in the terms of the hold harmless protections that the legislature is saying that's important right now. But you know, I'm, I'm hearing maybe up to three years. And then mm-hmm. after that, they would be on their own and have to make things work. Interestingly, there were simulations that were run Thursday that showed the state's two largest school district, Boise and West Ada, losing millions of dollars each year out of their budget. Uh, and West Ada certainly is a growing district. It's the largest yeah. district in the state. It continues to grow. And so that surprised me. Um, and, you know, let's... Talk about the political reality here. If you're going to make a change in the funding formula, you need to get 36 House members to sign on, and you need 18 senators to sign on. There are a lot of House members and a lot of senators who represent Ada and Canyon Counties, who represent you know, the Boise School District and the West Ada School District. Uh, you know, if they vote against it because they're concerned about how this is going to affect you know, their hometown school district, that's a lot of votes uh, that you lose right off at the top. And you talk about these other uh, school districts that may lose out, uh, these uh, smaller districts that, um, that, that that seem to be destined to lose money in, 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 the, in the new version of the formula. You know, legislators have to go back home and explain why they voted uh, for a change in the funding formula that might uh, have an adverse effect on their local district. That's a tough vote for a legislator to, to cast. I go back to you know 1994. I didn't cover it in 1994, but when we first started looking at the rewrite of the funding formula, when this first became a germ of an idea three years ago, I look back at what happened in 1994. The legislature put a ton of money into the formula. They put a ton of money into K-12 that year to sort of smooth over the process, to sort of make it uh, politically palatable uh, to make this kind of a change. And it sounds like we're heading down that same road where 
in order to make this politically palatable, but also make it feasible at the school district level. I mean, you know, you, know, you need money to operate a school district. It may take a lot of money to make this change in the formula uh, doable. So this could be a really, really protracted debate and a really, uh, really complicated debate because it's a lot of money on top of a lot of competing funding needs within K-12 and, and beyond. This could be one of several huge issues dominating the 2019 legislative session. I do want to point out a couple of things here. These numbers are not final, not by any means. Uh, Michael Griffith, the consultant working on this, has pointed out uh, their projections, their proposals at this point. Nothing is final. Try not to get too alarmed uh, by the numbers that I pointed out. But I think it is absolutely appropriate to start taking a look at the realities that school districts could be faced with. They said they want to make some additional tweaks to the funding formula. Uh, they want to firm up what they're going to do for the weighting and for the protections for small school districts. They even talked about potentially a protection for the largest school districts. And so they have some decisions to make. It's not final yet. They do want to see if they can correct that problem where the small districts that aren't growing, that don't have special needs kids, get absolutely hammered. They want to take care of that and it is designed to be more simple and more predictable than our current funding formula model. The idea is that there's a base amount per student. You multiply that base amount by your enrollment. You add in the additional weights for your special needs students or for if you're a small school district. And then you can predictably think about what your budget's going to be and it makes sense. And you could theoretically explain it to your patrons. Um, only about 80 people, the consultants say, have even test-driven the spreadsheet. I think it's time for that to go public. They did mention yeah. on Thursday that when they released it to a group of beta testers, a small number of school district business officers did see it, and they already found an error. I, I think that justifies the need to release the spreadsheet to the public immediately. Let those school district business managers and superintendents and legislators and policymakers and everybody else start playing with it. Maybe they find an error in there. Maybe they have a little bit more understanding of, of what this is. But I, I think it's high time that this is released to the public. And uh, we've been pushing that issue. We've, we've filed the public records request. Uh, which was to, denied. Which was denied. And, you know, it's not about us. It's not about my fascination with spreadsheets, which is a matter of public record. But it, it's about getting this document, this draft document. I get it. It's a draft document. It could be uh, subject to a lot of change along the way. But it getting it in the hands of people who understand school finance and the impacts of changes in school finance and can spot, you know, bugs in the system, you know, ghosts in the machine. It, that can't happen if the document is, uh, is not available to the public or it's available to a select sample of uh, folks who are, are brought in for the beta test. So, all yeah. those people We've all been arguing for transparency districts. for weeks, yeah. and we're still there. I have been told that maybe it will be coming out on November 2nd. They want to test drive a couple things, fix a couple glitches, make a couple more decisions. But all those folks in North Idaho and Eastern Idaho and Central Idaho that can't come over to the legislature and meet with these consultants and can't see the spreadsheet themselves, let them see it, you know? At this point, it's just good policy because November 26th is going to come around faster than you think. That's the next meeting for this uh, committee. And then their charter the last, expires. Yeah, and it's probably their last best chance to come to any kind of conclusions. So that's that's a month away, that that next meeting. And you do have a week uh, preceding you know, that for Thanksgiving. So practically speaking, I don't think people are going to spend a whole lot of time Thanksgiving week uh, pouring over 
this spreadsheet. I mean, I hope not. I hope people celebrate Thanksgiving at right. least. <laughs> but that's not a lot of time. So the sooner people get their hands on this and the sooner they can look at it and uh, make uh, meaningful recommendations or share some, some meaningful feedback, the better. So I hope yeah. this thing goes public by the second, and if we'll not sooner. And we'll continue to advocate that. For the, and I know there is something to be said for making sure something is ready for prime time. Making sure that it, it's what we want and what we think it is and we've put enough thought into it and then it's sort of a final product, so to speak. I get all that. We're getting closer and closer to the 2019 legislative session. We're getting closer and closer to that final meeting of the school funding formula interim committee. I think it's time. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, I think those folks that would be impacted have an absolute right to see it and, and to know, okay, based on the proposal now, where would this leave us? Uh, and we are talking about maybe implementing this, you know, not the next school year, but maybe two school years away, then maybe having maybe up to three years of a hold the harmless provision. But at some point, if this is passed into law, uh, it's going to be a reality for some of these school districts. And I think these folks have an absolute right to see the spreadsheet, to be able to plug the numbers in for themselves, to look at the calculations, and see what their budget realities could be under this change. I think that time is is here now. Uh, I and, hope and it comes out by November 2nd, but I think now's the time. Right, and when that spreadsheet goes public, we will write about it. We will let you know that it is out in the public domain. We'll link to it. So so keep an eye on idahoidnews.org. We'll, we'll let you know uh, when that becomes public. And Note, I did not say if and when it becomes public, because it's going to become public, right? Uh, when and hopefully soon, uh, we'll let you know. All right. Uh, if you want to get caught up, uh, caught up on the funding formula or anything else, head over to idahoednews.org. But real quick, uh, Kevin, anything going on next week? Uh, yeah, I think we'll find other stuff to deal with <laughs> next week. Uh, already we know that there's going to be some interesting stuff that we're going to be following. It is the run-up to Election Day on November 6th. So we know we will get a new round of sunshine reports early next week. So we'll get a sense of who's putting money into the race for governor, state superintendent. Also probably want to look at the uh, the ballot initiatives that do have impact on education. So we'll look at what's going on on the Medicaid expansion and on the horse racing initiatives. So uh, because it wouldn't be a complete week for me without diving into numbers. Sunshine reports next week, can't, can't hardly wait. But we have other stuff going on. Uh, we'll have more previews of the elections. There is a final uh, state superintendent's debate on Monday that you'll be covering. Yep. So a, a lot to get to next week. So uh, check in with us during the week and uh, stay current on what's happening. Do not forget the election is coming up on November 6th, just a few days early. away at this point, especially if you live in and around Ada County. Very easy uh, to vote early. You can vote at City Hall. Uh, they have the food truck style uh, mobile voting units all around. Uh, but don't forget about the big election on November 6th. Our governor, our state superintendent, every single legislator, two propositions that would have an impact potentially on education. No excuse not to vote uh, this year. Make sure you're registered. Double check your polling place. And we will have some articles coming out late next week uh, telling you how you can double check that you're registered and where your polling place is. Especially if you haven't voted in a couple of election cycles, your polling place may have changed. And we will talk about that next week on the podcast as well. But I think that's everything I wanted to get to this week. I know it was a lot, but it's a very busy time for us. So thanks for indulging with us and, and, and thanks for joining us. We always have a lot of fun kind of breaking down this complicated intersection of education politics and education policy. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.